0: podcast listeners, we're back. Uh, this would be episode 40, I believe. Uh, so I kind of want to pick up in 1993. That's the year that I moved to San Francisco. Um, let's see. guess I should talk a little bit about what led me to San Francisco in the first place. Uh, that year perhaps maybe in the latter part of 92. uh, I was working at a skateboard shop in Albuquerque called The Beach Zone. Um, I had been a faithful customer of the place through my teens. And uh, when the opportunity came up to work there, I was fucking all in. At the time, I was working... I think it's Sizzler Steakhouse. So the job doing retail at the Beach Zone was a level up in my mind. Um, Part of my responsibilities at the Beach Zone were ordering all the stuff for the skateboard area. Uh, So I ended up being on the, the phone with all the salespeople at the different companies. And one afternoon, I remember I was talking to Rob Um, who was the salesman at Think Skateboards in San Francisco. And I forget how it went down, but basically I told him I could sell more of his boards if the graphics were better. Uh, His competitors, I thought, were doing much better board graphics. And uh, I think I added, you know, I think I could draw better graphics myself, frankly, than what you're offering. And Rob thought that was funny and kind of cocky and was like, well, send some drawings to us. Let's see what you got. And I did just that. Um, I wrote out Think a few times in an old uh, graffiti sketchbook that I I still have on my bookshelf. And I photocopied the, the stuff I drew for them and a few other things that I just thought they might like to see that were in that same sketchbook. And I put those Xerox copies in a manila envelope, like a big one, and took it to the post office and sent it off and hoped for the best. And maybe just a week later, maybe even less than that, I heard back from Rob, and he was like, yo, we fucking love what you drew. Like, we want to buy some of this stuff. And I was like, fuck yeah, see, fresh, awesome, let's do this. And uh, that was kind of the, the beginning of uh, my whole career as a uh, freelance illustrator, so to speak. Um, I think around that time, too, I did some graphics for Burton snowboards that were kind of graffiti style. And also around that time, I started uh, doing graphics for uh, tribal clothing. Um, But back to think, Um, so after they bought um, the first batch of things, uh, they asked for more. And so I drew up some more stuff, some things um, like turning light bulbs into characters, uh, stuff like that, some kind of like raver slash graffiti kind of skate stuff, which they really liked. And so we went back and forth, um, with graphics and, uh, checks coming in, uh, for a little while there, we're really developing a relationship. Uh, I forget, let's see. So 93, I believe, when would that have been, so it was probably the fall of 93, uh, I went to the ASR trade show, action sports retailer, um, per the invite of the guys at Think. Um, and because I w- worked at a skate shop, it was really easy for me to get a pass and have a legitimate reason for being there. Um, it was the place to go, like for myself, as a, the kid that was doing all the skateboard ordering um, for our shop, it was the place for me to go and see what pretty much every single company had to offer, um, you know, for the the next season, or you know, the whatever next uh, period. Um, they did those shows twice a year, and so I met, and it was in San Diego, the the trade show. So I flew out there from Albuquerque, and I'd already. Made friends in um, San Diego. I had lots of friends there already, um, but the the main mission, if I remember correctly, was to meet the guys from Think and see what's up, and you know, just kind of put a face to the the voice on the phone. That's the only way we had interacted previously. So I met them, and they were really nice and really fun they were also kind of like raver partier guys which was uh not all that common in the skate world at the time it was more like gangster rap kids or metal kids there weren't a lot of uh known skateboarders that were into the rave scene so we really vibed on that level um i think we hung out at the trade show a little bit and talked and agreed to uh meet up at one of the trade show after parties um that that first evening that I met them and uh I was fucking pumped you know it was like I had been a skateboarder for fuck since 83 at that point we're talking 93 so a good 10 years of my life I had been like skateboarding every single day It was just immersed in the culture in here. I'm starting to meet the people behind it all, the, the industry people, the people that owned all the companies that I supported. And, uh, you know, as this kid from this isolated city like Albuquerque, that was a big deal. And it kind of uh, demystified a lot of things in my mind, too. You know, you kind of elevate people that you see in magazines and behind the scenes and in videos and stuff. And then when you meet them, you realize, oh, these are just like me. They're just these skater guys. Like there's very little difference between us, even though we live really, really far from each other. So that night I met the guys from Think at a place called Ole Madrid in uh, downtown San Diego. And it was kind of like a nightclub. It was super popping at two floors. And if I remember correctly, we we went in, uh, ordered drinks, uh, had a chat, you know, exchanged that we were stoked to meet each other. And I think it's at that point that they dropped the news that they wanted me to work full-time for them doing uh, board graphics. And I was like, fucking holy shit, yeah, I definitely want to do that. And they were super pumped. And I think at that point, you know, that meant that um, – you know i would just do that from albuquerque and uh in any case i was fucking super psyched i couldn't be happier and i think at that point they might have offered me an ecstasy for the first time and i was like fuck yeah let's let's try this and uh <laughs> i had never done it before they had done it lots and lots. They were fully into the uh, rave world back then, but I'd never done it before, so I had no idea what the deal was. So I uh, I think I just meandered off by myself and was just kind of like waiting for it to come on. I'd heard all kinds of stories and uh, they had some really bumping uh, house music playing uh, in the basement, but we were there kind of early and there might have only been like five or six people in the basement DJ area, you know, dance floor. And there probably could have had maybe forty people in there, you know, normally. So it was really fucking empty. And off in a dark corner, I just started really feeling the music. And I was a I was a raver at that point already. I'd been dancing like crazy in Albuquerque. And uh so <laughs> you know, again, I'd never done E before, so I didn't really know, you know, what, how I was going to feel. And so I think it was Greg and Keith from Think, um, came down into the basement area and saw me dancing by myself, like actually like break dancing, which I never do. I was like doing floor moves and I was fucking, you know, high as a kite (laughs) all by myself. And, uh, they were like hey mike what's going on dude how you doing and i was like oh i'm good i'm good and they were like did that e hit you and i was like i'm not sure and they were like dude you're breakdancing by yourself in the dark in a basement at a club i think you're high as fuck and i was like yeah maybe that's it and they just laughed and laughed they're like dude it's definitely it we're glad to see that you're having a good time you know and i was like man i feel awesome this is great this is amazing They just laughed and laughed and laughed. They couldn't fucking believe it. I was such like a, I don't know. I just, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't done that yet. And it was, at that time, the ecstasy was really, really, really good. It was a a really nice body high that lasted for a long time. Um, Yeah, it was, it was nice. You know, I I didn't do it a lot because it was kind of expensive. It was about $20 a pill back then. And again, this is like ninety-three. Um, so you know, you could get a forty for like two dollars <laughs> and get real faded, which was kind of what we did. Usually, we would drink forties and smoke weed before we'd go into a rave, just because the the e's were so expensive. Um, so in any case, we partied late into the night together in San Diego and bonded and I was so excited to do more work for them. And um, if I remember correctly, we hadn't talked about me moving to uh, San Francisco at all. It wasn't really necessary, but maybe just a week or two uh, after I met them at the ASR trade show, I got a call from Rob, the sales guy, and he was like, yo, when are you moving to San Francisco? And I was like, oh shit, I hadn't really been tripping on that. And he was like, oh yeah, dude, like I have an extra room in my flat, you know, here in here in San Francisco. And you could rent the the room that's going to be open. And I was like, fuck, wow, I guess I could do that. And he was just like, yeah, dude, it's all, it's fucking ready to go. Like, let's do this. And what I didn't really realize at the time is that Rob was kind of, he needed a roommate. <laughs> and he also knew that I had been offered a job. So he just kind of jumped the gun a little bit, I guess, and invited me to move there. And uh, so I did. I think my rent was $375 a month. I lived at... um what was the address? I think like it was the 1900 block of McAllister between Central and Lyon. And I remember uh, the first location of Everlasting Tattoo was uh, right next door. Um, so there was that was kind of an easy landmark to just tell people I lived next to Everlasting. Um, so. I guess it was like September must have been like September 30th or 29th of 1993 I flew to San Francisco with a few bags full of just things to get me started there um, and arrived and met Rob who I'd met previously at the trade show and we went to his house and I met his roommates and it was very 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 fucking exciting i had never been to san francisco before i'd had friends visit for years and came back with the best stories um it was in all the skateboard videos back in the day and i knew the rave scene here was cracking um and i was told the drugs here or in san francisco were really 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 clean and good and strong so i was just like i was stoked For sure for sure super super stoked um so I got I remember I got there I got in my room I think I might have gone immediately to like a futon shop (laughs) and I bought a futon and a mat to get delivered so I'd have something to sleep on um which a lot of us did just because those damn futons were so cheap Um, and we were fucking broke. Um, so that first, I think that I'm, if I remember all this correctly, I think I arrived on like a Saturday and got oriented where I was and met everybody and got a key for the house and paid deposit stuff and all that to rob and, you know, made it all official. And then i had heard about a place called psycho city that was like the only graffiti spot that people um would tell me about that had visited and gone back to albuquerque they were like dude you've got to go visit psycho city it's right where hate street um begins where it hits market street and i that's all the location information i had at all and uh I decided to set out and go check this place out. So I loaded up uh, my tribal backpack with spray paint and uh, I hopped on my skateboard and uh, left the Western Edition neighborhood where I was living and uh, cruised over to Haight Street and then just started skating on down Haight Street towards lower Haight. Again, this was like the first time I had skated in San Francisco at all period um really had no idea of the layout of the city and the hill system and anything like that at all so i'm just oblivious as fuck this is probably such a common rookie move of skateboarders going to san francisco just thinking oh i'll just cruise around so i start going down hate street from upper hate and anybody that knows knows, you know, they call it Upper Haight because it's at the top of a big hill. And so I was going on the downside and uh, quickly realized I was going really, really fucking fast, faster than I probably skated in months, um, but was able to drag my foot and keep myself under control. And I was able to get all the way down um, through Visadero on Haight Street, all the way down the bottom of the hill there didn't die, you know, felt exhilarated because I had just survived, you know, my first hill bomb in San Francisco and uh, was feeling good, you know, confident, cocky almost. And then, uh, as anybody knows, it's going that way on Hate Street, you keep going, you roll through Lower Hate neighborhood where all the uh, shops and bars and whatnot are, and it's pretty flat through there. And there's a little bit of an uphill section past what uh, used to be the Pink Projects, for anybody that remembers that era. And that's the crest of another hill where the Hate Street Art Center is now and Jeremy Fish's sculpture. And then it's just kind of a madcap bomb straight down Hate uh, Street all the way to Market. Um, kind of nowhere to bail, side to side, no grass, all concrete and cars. And I just had to fucking bomb it I couldn't slow down there was no way to outrun it I was just going way too fast so in any case I I fly down hate street I get to market street and uh I forget how I must have been once I got to market street there was a bus uh going up market street and i was going straight for it and i was wobbling because i was going so fast and I, I somehow avoided the bus but i remember getting eye contact with a few people on the bus and they were like oh shit this kid's gonna hit the bus oh fuck. and then i barely got around it and then there was a taxi cab so i had to actually jump off my board and i literally jumped over the hood of this cab i don't I think I jumped right over the hood I don't think I touched the car at all and then when I landed on the other side um, I had to roll it out and luckily there weren't any cars coming the other direction or I probably would have been dead because I, I didn't have a helmet on um, but I did roll it out and uh, I don't think any of the spray cans came out of my bag it was kind of crazy and i was able to retrieve my skateboard even it didn't get um broken in the process of the whole thing you know and i got my board back and i fucking limp over to the sidewalk and i check myself out make sure i'm not bleeding out of anywhere and i was like motherfucker dude you gotta be careful this city's gonna kill you like these hills are gnarly like fucking respect dude like chill out like don't do that again you know this." mental reminders that I fucked up really bad. I could have died, you know? It was like, take a moment, you know, learn something from this. And I never forgot that from then on, I super respected the hills. Um, I learned how to skate them better, of course, and have more control, but you know, respect. Um, So all this has happened. I chill out and then I look around and I realize I'm at Psycho City it's just like oh shit i'm here (laughs) it was it was a fucking amazing day and so i go to psycho city and it's kind of like a old school hall of fame you might call it so it was like a a bunch of walls um i think one was a union building and then there was this old like shitty hotel that was another building and it kind of created this big fenced-in yard that people would park in usually um, but it had been taken over by the local graffiti writers, and there was stuff by like Dream TDK, rest in peace, and Twist had some stuff up in there. I remember Doug one, this guy Bum, um, God, who else was up in there that first time that I went? It's really hard to remember at this point because that place uh, it got painted a lot, so it's hard to place where and when something was painted there and it already had lots and lots of layers of paint on it at that point I remember tripping out on that like how much actual spray paint was on the walls in there and also all over the ground was tagged which was different usually people didn't tag on the ground I think it was a agree that told me like uh you don't want people walking on your on your name you know I mean your name is a representation of yourself and you know, you want it dignified, you want it up high, and you want it big, and you want it with style, you don't want to put it on the ground, where people are stomping on it, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, symbolically, whatever, but at Psycho City, there was all kinds of shit all over the ground, and I, I kind of loved it, it was crazy, it was just absolute fucking chaos, and I couldn't wait to uh, do something there, and I, I think that first time I actually did something, must have just been a real simple, giant, something or other I wish I could remember had a photo I don't think it was a big deal I don't think I was trying to flex it was just like kind of getting a feel for the place and I think I was there you know middle of the afternoon on a Sunday and there wasn't anybody else around painting and it seemed like it was okay to paint but I wasn't sure if I would get arrested or not so it was kind of a little sketchy so I didn't spend a lot of time but I did check everything out I think I had a film camera on me i always did and uh took lots and lots of 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 flicks um and then i think it was just the next day that i rode two buses um from the western edition down to uh hunter's point where the think skateboards warehouse was on uh yosemite um and i think ingles is the other cross street um We had to take the 5 Fulton bus from the Western Edition all the way downtown to the Market Street and 3rd. And then we would hop on the 15 3rd Street bus, and that would take us all the way out to Hunters Point. And then we had to walk maybe five or six blocks from there to the warehouse in a kind of just a big warehouse district that was fairly safe. Um, but the Hunters Point neighborhood itself was notoriously dangerous. Um, It was really common for people to get robbed on the way to um, all the skateboard uh, businesses that were down by Think, Um, like Thrasher was up the street, and all the real skateboards distribution was um, very close by, too, Um, and we all shared the same uh, print shop, print time. Um, so on October 1st of 93, I only remember that cause that was like a, the day that I started working at Think Skateboards. And I remember showing up after a, a good, man, that bus ride, I think was a little more than an hour between the two buses. And, uh, we get all the way down there. I think work started at eight o'clock in the morning. So we were we were out early and uh, we get there and I roll in and it was this funny mix of like surprise and stoke when I walked in and the owners of Think were like really surprised to see me like, Mike, hey, wow, fucking what's up, dude? What are you doing here? And I was like, oh, I, I moved here you know, I I got, you offered me the job, right, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, we did, we did, where are you living, and I'm like, I'm living with Rob, and then they were like, oh, they they kind of put it together, like, why I had moved out, because Rob needed a roommate, and he was just, he's the one that orchestrated me getting there, so when I actually got to think, they were like, whoa, why are you here, you know, and I'm like, I'm ready to start work, and they're like, oh fuck all right well let's get you a spot to draw you know and on the spot they figured it out and showed me um in the back there was actually like a a large closet space that uh ben lovejoy who was doing all the the graphics for them at that point as far as like the production stuff all the wheels and getting everything ready for print and dealing with films and um there were other artists that would uh you know freelance stuff um for think and ben would be the one that would handle it and make it printable so i show up and i think ben had already yeah ben would have already been handling my artwork at that point um but we'd never met in person we met that day and we just vibed was like really similar build and just these goofy dudes art art guys and uh, we both were really into skating. I think we were both shaving our heads at that time, which was just kind of a, a utility thing because we didn't have a lot of money to spend on barbers and things. So we just all had clippers and we'd just buzz our heads. You know, We weren't trying to look like skinheads or anything. It was just, I don't know. Like I say, it was a utility thing, ease. And most of us were wearing our hoods up anyway, a very San Francisco thing. Uh, so in any case, um i meet ben and the 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 owners explain the situation that i'm there now i need a place to draw luckily i think there was already a little drawing table in there that ben was using and so they just kind of stuffed me in there and uh (laughs) it had one window um that went out to the warehouse actually to the shrink wrap machine so when they were shrink wrapping sometimes the fumes would fill up our little office and i'd have to shut the window (laughs) but otherwise then we didn't have any ventilation and i don't think uh i think that the door opened into the office so we couldn't leave the door open if ben was going to sit at the computer it was like that small of a room like if i had to leave the room ben had to physically get up out of his chair and, and stand out of the way so I could get by and just go use the bathroom or grab some coffee or anything like that. Um, damn, those were good days. So anyway, uh, me and Ben hit it off. Uh, we were exchanging, you know, I think music taste and stuff uh, right off the bat. Uh, started hanging out after work, uh, doing other shit, making friends and whatnot. Um, now a big thing was actually meeting writers there for the first time. Um, back then it was hard to meet writers, period. Like, if you just rolled up on somebody and asked them, Hey, man, are you a graffiti writer? Nine times out of ten, they were just going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I. I don't I don't do any of that. Even if they had like tags on their backpack and stuff, it was like really obvious. People would just deny it. So you kinda had to know some people that would introduce you to some people and that kind of thing, like a little underworld thing. And at the time I had been trading photographs with Espo in Philadelphia. He had a magazine, I think that was called On the Go. And it was like a hip-hop and graffiti thing. And it featured straight dope shit edited by Espo himself. And uh, I think I mentioned to him that I was moving to San Francisco and asked if he had any connects there. And if I remember correctly, uh, the connect that he had was with a guy named uh, that wrote Soap, uh, Bill Schiff rest in peace. Um, and so soon after I got there, I think I just called Bill and and told him what was up and, you know, kind of we, you know, who we had in common, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the whole vouching kind of thing and everything was cool. And, um, we agreed to meet up. I think the First time I met them, I went right to uh, where uh, Bill was living uh, on Clay Street, I believe it was. Um, How would I describe where that is? It's kind of between Knob Hill and like Chinatown. It's like halfway up that hill for anybody in San Francisco. Um, Bill was dating a girl I believe that was going to the art institute and there was another girl there that I think was going to USF so it was like college kids um you know a lot of the the flats around there were um like four or five bedrooms that would be broken up you know just like that um and we hit it off I think we got some 40s uh if I remember damn i guess felon came a little later if i remember correctly i think i just met soap initially um and if not that first night soon after i believe i met jace who was from baltimore um and um soap also uh if i remember right was from baltimore so there's this whole like uh connection that I was already making in San Francisco with East Coast writers, which was kind of strange, but um, they were really cool, and I, I vibed with them, I, I, I liked them, we had really, really good times, a lot of fun, um, I think that first night, we went to the Condor, which was a famous, like, strip burlesque kind of club from way back in the day, like, 40s, 50s, 60s, really really f- uh famous place and we would go there and uh just play pool and drink beer and shoot the shit um and often from there we would um have our bags of paint with us and we would just go walking around the neighborhoods of San Francisco writing graffiti everywhere it was a really fun way to get to know the city um with some locals and find all the cool little neighborhoods and learn where the high traffic areas were so you, your graffiti got a lot of visibility the actual first time that i really wrote graffiti in san francisco um if i remember this is how i remember it i just got a message from joker who was also there about uh some of the details that i didn't remember so i'm gonna kind of uh i'm gonna recall exactly what i can recall in my mind and not try to add from uh what uh jerry's perspective was um but hopefully i'll do a podcast interview with him at some point and we can talk more about that but in any, in any case um i'm not sure how soap knew joker i know you know they were that's the thing They i think they were both an ihu crew Um, which was started, if I remember correctly, in Baltimore. So um, Joker was also from that area. Um, So the first actual night that I went out to do uh, graffiti with with soap, Joker came along. It was my first meeting with Joker, but I believe I had known about his work for a while previously through Tribal Gear, who we were both working for. If I remember right, he had uh, graphics in those first few seasons that i did too and it had a really really cool style um and so we connected with soap and uh he took us to the dubose tunnel uh, which is on the end judah line um of the the muni streetcar system in san francisco um and if i remember correctly we entered from the upper hate end of uh the Dubose tunnel um we yeah I'm not so sure about some of the details of that first night because we did end up going back to that tunnel many times it it's frankly my favorite place to paint in the whole world um it's it's very very exciting you have to well back then like we would sit um and watch the trains go in and out and try to figure out the uh, the timing because you had to go into the tunnel at a time when the trains weren't anywhere nearby or you'd get flat out killed. So we kind of got the the gist of it, I think, from SOAP about when we could go in. And we waited for um, a train car to come by, pick up its passengers, and then descend into the tunnel. And we just followed it in um, and kept an eye out off in the distance um, at the other end of the tunnel for headlights, that would be our warning that a train was coming from the other side on the the left side of the tracks. Um, but as long as you didn't see any of those, you know, uh, the, the headlights basically, you were, you were safe or, you know, relatively safe <laughs> in a tunnel. Um, but yeah, it was, I think we might've tried to follow the last train car in so that we knew another car wasn't going to be coming from the other direction um often that was the case we would try to just uh even physically see on the on the the time sheets um for the different trains that were available in the cars and at the stations you could just see what what time the last one uh rolled back into downtown this is really simple as that um so yeah uh Joker recollects that uh, just uh, Soap and I did uh, a piece each in the that that tunnel that night, and uh, that that seems right. Um, I do remember Joker being there, but I, I guess I can't remember if he painted something in there that night. Um, but that was a big, big fucking deal. It was like my first time painting in San Francisco, and we're in this like train tunnel in part of San Francisco's kind of subway system um it was really dangerous and dirty and it was just such a fucking adventure it was so so rad i think joker was living in the east bay at that time and uh soap was living in the city like i was so i ended up uh spending a lot more time with soap early on there um one of the early things i remember that he did uh he was really into using these uh pilot brand silver paint markers um he would rack them by the box um there was a art supply store on uh, market street that he particularly liked to grab those from it was like a really easy rack for him um he was kind of a he was like a really really handsome kind of slick con man kind of dude um he could like like he'd look you right in the eye with a smile while he was stealing you know right out from under you Uh, he did that all the time I thought it was pretty amazing Uh, but anyway he uh, he would get these uh, silver markers and immediately uh, he would basically destroy uh, the tip of the marker Uh, often he would uh, uh, sometimes just rub it back and forth in the street to get the, the felt material to loosen up and break up and What he was trying to do was uh, open up the felt so much that you could get a pretty fat line of silver out of a pretty small marker relatively. Um, I remember sometimes he would um, use a key and like pull at the felt and like key it out basically I think is what he would call it and it would kind of fan out the felt so again it could be filled with that silver liquid and give you a nice big fat line. Also sometimes because um, the, the felt was loosened up you could get the the silver uh, ink to drip really nice which was kind of a, what I think of as a predecessor to the KR's uh, brand of ink, Crank, uh, which famously had that incredible uh, ability to make these long straight drips um, out of a mop in that case. Uh, but soap had these uh, had that whole silver pen thing, smat you know worked out. I don't know if that was something he learned from somebody in the Bay Area or that was something he brought from the East Coast. Um, because I do feel like I remember um, Twist and a few other writers um, knew about how to flare out those uh, silver pens, and they were also a particularly good tool i think in san francisco because of the uh, abundance of uh, these mailboxes that are they're not actual mailboxes like the blue ones they're painted green and they're where the mailmen store um their different route bags inside those green boxes and the silver ink really stands out nice on that green um and it was really easy just to kind of casually uh stand next to one of those green boxes and catch a tag at waist height and uh, do it in broad daylight because nobody could really see what you were doing if you were blocking it correctly and uh, I remember Soap was particularly good at um, doing those uh, silver pen tags during the day. Um, I can remember standing with him on Market Street one time and uh, he was tagging, uh, there are these uh, red small boxes for the fire uh, department um, that are a little bit taller than the the post office boxes. And like I say, they're a little smaller, but they still have some nice surfaces and they're kind of at eye level for a lot of people. And uh, he loved to tag those as well. And so he was tagging one as we're just kind of waiting for the signal to cross uh, to go green. And this old lady walks up and she's like, hey, you, hey, you stop that. Stop that right now, stop that. And uh, Bill is just catching a tag, taking his time. And he just looks over at the lady casually and smiles. And it's just like, stop doing what? You know, and he just kept doing his tag while he wasn't looking at what he was doing. And she was like, that right there, stop doing that. What What you're doing right there, the vandalism. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about, lady. And he finished his tag without looking at it, just perfectly put the cap on the marker, put it in his pocket, and just walked away from this lady. And she was just so furious and confused and just, I don't know, it was like he was using the force on this lady. (laughs) But He did that all the time. And uh, I I fucking loved it. So back to my uh, living situation at the time. Uh, There on McAllister Street, uh, I was living with Rob, the... Sales guy at Think, and uh, there was this other guy there that was this like crazy red haired Irishman. I wish I could remember his name. And uh, if I remember right, a little later on, or maybe at that point, too, uh, my buddy Josh B, who's a, a well known DJ in uh, San Francisco to this day, uh, he was living there with us in basically a closet in the, the front uh, that he'd built out to so he could living there (laughs) the rent was really cheap and again us skaters really weren't making any money i I think i was making seven dollars an hour i think when i first started there um so i didn't have a lot of uh extra money for uh you know fancy shit but we were having such a good time it was it was so fun um yeah uh, everything was was cool at first and pretty slowly I got to realize why my room was available um, because Rob and my other roommate not Josh I think his name might have been Russ I don't know why I'm thinking his name was Russ but um, Rob and Russ as a combination were terrible Um, and uh, they would drink together and get really out of hand and they were both alcoholics I learned pretty quickly Um, And they were both really into cocaine too. I remember they would buy an eight ball of cocaine on a Friday evening, thinking it would last them through the weekend and it would be gone by like Saturday afternoon. (laughs) They were that kind of guys. And uh, it was, uh, I don't know, it was a learning experience. I'd never lived with people like that before. And when they were uh, happy and high, they were exceptional fun maybe a little too fun they would get a little uh, rambunctious and um kind of a little mean um but just being so high not really realizing that you know like just kind of i don't know I'll, I'll give you an example at the time uh i had a girlfriend that was living in England and she was going to Exeter University on an exchange program and i was living in San Francisco And, you know, so obviously I was kind of heartbroken and missed her and couldn't wait to see her. And uh, my new buddies, my new roommates, thought that was really cute. Um, And (laughs) they would kind of hassle me a a bit about it and just be like, dude, just, you know, fuck some girls here, dude. She she wouldn't have to know about it. They were that kind of guys. They would uh, get drunk sometimes and have their girlfriends over. And they thought it would be really, really funny to have their girlfriends Uh, yell out my name while they were fucking their girlfriends and it happened to be that they were on either side of my bedroom and so it was just really obvious and really loud and they would just be laughing their asses off and the girls would be all wasted thinking it was really funny too and you know that I was a good sport and I, I guess I was a good sport but At the same time, it it really hurt my feelings (laughs) to have to deal with that shit. And uh, I remember just trying to put uh, my headphones on and try to turn my uh, Walkman all the way up and just rave out and try to ignore them. Um, But, you know, otherwise it was was a really fun place to live. Admittedly, I kind of got caught up in the alcohol. I remember getting really into Jägermeister at that time. And would drink whole bottles of Jägermeister and get super faded, and uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, I was smoking weed a little bit then too. Uh, people were passing around a lot of LSD back then too, that I was always down to to try. I had done that a few times in Albuquerque before I'd moved to San Francisco. Um, trying to think, there I, I remember pretty early on, I w- my roommates. Uh, wanted to throw a house party and invite their friends. And I hadn't been there too long. And I remember inviting uh, Soap and, and his friends. I think Jace came too. I'm not sure if a uh, felon had entered the picture yet. I think he came a few months after I was there from Baltimore. He was one of Soap's best buddies, if I remember right. And uh, ended up being, you know, with us constantly Uh, but I can remember that night at the house party like the Victorian house that we lived in was really crooked from the earthquakes and stuff over the years and like I remember I had a thing I could show people where I put a tennis ball by the window of my bedroom and all by itself it would roll right to the door because the floor was so crooked Um, you know and so (laughs) At a certain point at this party um, in the hallway, it was like a shotgun style flat. So you'd come up the stairs and you could see all the way out the back door through a long hallway. And all the rooms were just off to the right of that hallway. And uh, everybody was piled up against the left side of the the house as you're coming up the stairs. Because that was like the lowest point in the whole house. And everybody, as they got more and more drunk, would just kind of stumble and fall and end up against that wall (laughs) it was just the funniest thing to come to back you know from getting jägermeister and just see the whole party is all against one wall and all the rooms are empty and nobody can figure out why they're all against the same wall (laughs) oh my god those were good times we had uh i think people tried to ride uh skateboards without wheels just the decks down this our stairs and uh some people got injured doing that <laughs> those were those were such fun times like back then if uh we were out writing graffiti and uh just happened to see that a house party was happening um we would often just like kind of try to get our sh- shit together like usually we would be dusty and have paint on us and stuff or maybe latex gloves and so we would take all that stuff off and get cleaned up and straighten up our hair and whatnot and uh we would just walk up to these random house parties and be like uh i mean soap was the one that was always the front man because he was so smooth like a con man and he would just be like hey man yeah my friend uh john he's upstairs he he invited me over i live down the street my name's you know daryl or whatever he'd always give a fake name and they'd be like oh shit yeah i think i know who you're talking about dude roll up in there it's all good you know enjoy yourselves what's up guys And we'd roll in it's like a little foursome and uh usually uh i remember soap wouldn't waste too much time basically we would go in we'd look around for cute girls and alcohol that was the whole reason to kind of go to those things uh especially at random people's houses that we didn't know um and i was of course with a bunch of thieves um so you know i always had had to watch my back a little bit and keep an eye out for my friends because I wasn't really trying to steal from people's houses and shit. I never did. Um but those guys would take advantage of those situations and we'd roll out with bottles of uh really nice expensive alcohol often. Um I can remember too, we went to a house, people we didn't know, we went into their uh kitchen and started going through the fridge looking for alcohol to throw in our pockets and on the fridge uh stuck on with little magnets were uh stickers graffiti stickers that they had peeled off different things in the neighborhood and they happened to have a soap sticker i think they had a Jace sticker and a twist sticker what were the other ones and we just thought oh fuck we're like robbing from writers or people that know about graffiti and stuff we thought that was so funny I don't think we ever figured out who that was even that we uh that we stole uh booze from but I I remember thinking that was uh we, we talked about how funny that was that we were trying to put the stickers up to be graffiti writers and to be up and these motherfuckers were taking them down to put up on their refrigerators we were kind of bummed on that but at the same time it was funny to know that randoms were checking that shit out the place I lived at on McAllister Street wasn't too far from Upper Haight, and uh, I would walk up there often. I think one of the first times I walked up there, I happened to go into one of those like hippie places that smells like Nag Champa from the, the door, and it had all kinds of uh, trippy stuff like crystals and necklaces and lot a lot of books too so i was digging through the books and uh at the time i was a little depressed my girlfriend was living in exeter england at the time doing a foreign exchange and uh i missed her and uh i was alone kind of in a new city and uh yeah, I was looking for some guidance. And I remember I found this book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Kodron. I don't know if that's exactly how you say her name. Um, but it was a really, really, really good book. And kind of started to open up my mind and heart to Buddhist practice. I remember one big thing was um, realizing as you learn how to meditate that, uh, you kind of realize that you've been kind of an asshole (laughs) because you've been, uh, basically just, uh, living and responding to your thoughts moment to moment without taking a bit of time to reflect on your thoughts or to gain some perspective, uh, from the thinker, um, some distance uh so you're not just kind of living superficially and at the whim of your emotions uh and in that in reading that book and doing some of the exercises i, I realized that uh, there was a big part of me that was an asshole <laughs> and uh it's a practice you know that i continue uh to to work on you know i'm kind of constantly uh Investigating where I'm being an asshole. (laughs) I think that's a big part of Buddhist practice. Um, But also, I remember I bought a book called uh, The Art of Sexual Ecstasy by Margot Anand. Um, Again, my girlfriend was living in England and she was my first girlfriend. And I knew I, you know, only knew as much about sex as I did from her. Um, so if I was going to uh, surprise her so to speak, I would have to uh, develop some some knowledge and some techniques on my own. So I thought that would be a, a great book to help me on that journey as well and it turned out it was. Remember a big thing I learned from that book was uh, how to how uh, how men can delay orgasm uh, through various methods um one one i remember was a just a straight up physical um method uh which was just before reaching orgasm uh you press off um the pumping action from the prostate by pressing on the perineum the perineum is basically what you might call the taint um but By pressing there in the right moment, um, just at the moment of ejaculation, uh, you you basically stop that process from happening. So if you hold the perineum down as you're orgasming, um, it stops the ejaculation part. And by just kind of relaxing and letting that um, sensation pass, uh, you can maintain your erection and keep going. Um, Easier said than done. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of an awkward thing in that moment to reach down between your legs and, and stop it. Um, but it does work. Uh, I, I know that it, it does work. And if you just keep doing that, uh, you can kind of, uh, prolong sex indefinitely at a certain point. It's just kind of a, a, a useless trick, <laughs> not something to be relied on. Uh, but that book did, uh, opened me up to a lot of those different kinds of uh, things that I I didn't know about my own body. Um, And again, there was a lot of breathing techniques that I thought were really helpful where they were saying, uh, you know, in the midst of sex to uh, concentrate on breathing or to concentrate on your partner, um, also to see sexuality and orgasm as a way to experience the ego-less state that um, monks, uh, you know, meditators talk about, a place beyond ego, uh, pure bliss. Um, that's, you know, the orgasm is part of that. It's the way that uh, human beings also articulate, I think, the creative energy of the universe Um, As if, you know, each orgasm is a little big bang. uh, But human size. (laughs) In any case, uh, I was young. I was open to all sorts of things. Um, And that was just part of the journey. I remember... When was that? So I think that first... That first winter I was there, I I missed my girlfriend a lot. And I asked her if she would come visit me for Christmas that year, um, if I could pay for her flights and stuff, and she agreed. And so I saved um, money for months and months. I was only making $7 an hour at Think Skateboards at the time. Um, but I just kind of went on a, uh, I don't know. I was just poor, you know, and I was trying to save money. So I remember eating spaghetti noodles with garlic and, uh, garlic salt, uh, Parmesan cheese and olive oil. And I had that every single night for literally like two and a half months I remember my roommates, they thought it was the funniest fucking thing when I'd come in to the, uh, the main room that we all shared, the the living room you might call it, um, with my bowl of spaghetti, like a, like a fucking monk, <laughs> just surviving on the bare essentials. I think for breakfast those days I was having a, a coffee from a, a food truck that would come to Think Skateboards every morning, um, I'd get a gigantic coffee, and like a muffin and yeah and and that was it and that's what i would have for breakfast and that was a really terrible uh thing for my digestive system i I shouldn't have done that (laughs) i'm paying for it now uh but that was my usual daily i think at lunchtime i would make myself a sandwich and bring some chips and a soda um just like i was in fucking middle school (laughs) again just because I was trying to save money I think once a week I would splurge and go um, up Yosemite Street to 3rd Street in San Francisco and there was this uh, fast food place that was old school I think there's a McDonald's there now it's not even the the same building but back then it was this cool spot and they had these amazing fish sandwiches they were huge and delicious and kind of greasy and definitely not good for you and I remember the guys at Think would just shake their heads and be like, dude, how the fuck do you eat at that place? It's so gross. And I I just, I loved it. But those were those days. And so, anyway, I was able to get my girlfriend to come visit and uh, I remember I had painted my room green and purple because they were her favorite colors and she thought that was really cute because I'm colorblind, so it wasn't so particular the right shades and hues of green and purple that she liked. Probably not even close, (laughs) but I think she appreciated the effort, and I remember I had painted a big like four by five foot um, canvas that was a portrait of her in spray paint that was kind of abstract and whatnot i wish i still had that painting it was cool um and she came out for about two weeks and i remember my uh, roommates were really stoked for me because they had seen me eating spaghetti for months (laughs) and they were like who is this girl and so when they she came out and met them all they were like oh okay she's rad i see what you're up to you're on a good track here mike (laughs) And that was super fun we had a fucking amazing uh two weeks i remember one night we were all partying drinking a bunch and we were gonna go up to hate street um to drink and i think i knew we had like 20 minutes before we needed to head out and uh my girl and i agreed that it would be fun to fuck real quick (laughs) in my room And uh, we got into it, and we were having a great time, and I don't think we were making much noise. I think there was, like, stereo noise in the house that was kind of drowning things out. Um, But we were really going at it, sweating hard, and, you know, we were very, very much in love and hadn't seen each other in a long time. And at a certain point, my door burst open, and the... I think it was 3 the three, the all three roommates all guys uh all fell into my room. <laughs> and it turned out that they had all had their ears against the door and were listening to me and my girl get it on and uh having a good old laugh about it and then the door they just were leaning on it too hard it just happened to open and they fell right in. <laughs> So they're all on the floor and they're looking up at us and luckily Lori was cool. She just laughed and was like, get the fuck out of here, you know, and I laughed too and they they apologized and got out and shut the door and uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of lost the mood at that point and just got our shit together and went out, but um, that, that was a, f- God, that's a funny memory. I haven't thought about that in a long time as soon as i started uh working at think skateboards uh they uh let me know that they were down to go to raves and take me to stuff like that and clubs and all sorts of stuff and you know i think i don't know how long they had been doing this but the the regular thing to do on a friday night was go to the sound factory this particular club in san francisco was pretty famous uh had a world-class sound system uh I think at that point doc martin was the resident on friday nights i remember seeing him play a lot and he just played fucking just amazing house music um sometimes he'd veer off into hip-hop and acid jazz and whatnot you know but mostly it was just banging ass house music and uh it was just the perfect fucking environment for it and uh it you know, I was able to get my hands on really good ecstasy at that time, too. Super clean, strong. Um, you know, we're still talking 93. <laughs> it was kind of a different world back then. Um, but I, I remember going there every week with them. Uh, and it was such a scene. Because I was, like, really, like, the dorky, tall artist, raver kid, you know, from Albuquerque at these big fancy big city clubs where a lot of the guys are dressed up nice with, you know, like jackets and ties and nice shoes and fresh haircuts. And the girls are wearing dresses and heels and nice purses and stuff. And I would be in like sneakers and overalls and a fucking like long sleeve striped shirt, like full on fruit loop raver. (laughs) Not really fitting into the scene. You know, like the, the guys that I worked with at Think, um, they were w- way more cool. They were like actually fucking cool and actually good looking and they could really dance good, way better than I could. And uh, they definitely got the attention of the A-list girls. And of course, they were selling probably the some of the best ecstasy in town. So they were kind of a magnet for for girls in that way too which I always kind of underestimate as like a a dorky artist kid but goddamn, we had fun there uh I remember seeing Mark Farina play there it was like um I, I guess those are those are really the early days of acid jazz as far as I'm concerned and Mark was doing this thing he called mushroom jazz where he would play house music with rap acapellas over the top. So it appealed to a really kind of cool, hip crowd um, of really savvy uh, dance uh, culture people um, because he played this really particular style. I remember... um, we went to a big rave in Oakland, uh, near Lake Merritt. And there were probably I imagine there was twenty thousand people at that one. This one that I'm thinking of in particular. Um they had like it was like the I forget what the building was called. Um, I wish I could remember, but it was like a big civic building. It had a huge auditorium inside. I think it had um, three or four separate DJ spaces. So it had a main stage area um, that probably about, I'd say 10 to 12,000 people could fit in the one main room, dancing and sitting. And then the, the other side rooms were a lot smaller. Um, but I remember when we first got there, security was pretty hard. They were like, these big dudes from Oakland, they were gigantic and they were, I don't know, they weren't like rough with us or anything, but they really definitely tried to keep us in line. There had been occasions when, um. Groups of people had rushed entrances to raves in the past, and it got a little chaotic and dangerous, and so they were trying to prevent that, which was reasonable. Um, but in any case, uh, in the morning, as people were rolling out, those same security guards were extra friendly. I think people had been slipping uh, ecstasy to security, and so they were all high as shit in the morning when the sun was coming up and the party was starting to wind down. And I remember just noticing that and thinking, that's the coolest fucking security you could ever fucking imagine. Just these gigantic dudes that were just like, all right, all you little ravers, you know, let's get on home now. Everybody's safe. You know, I love you all. You have a fantastic Sunday morning. <laughs> they were so cool. Uh, it was such a different personality than when we were getting into the party. But I remember that one too as we were leaving a friend mentioned that Mark Farina was going to play a dawn set at a a little space outside of the main coliseum. And I didn't even realize there was this little outside space at all from you know being in the rave earlier. I'd been inside in all the different spaces for like six seven hours at least you know so we're coming out and it's like oh no there was a whole nother section that we we missed but at least we caught this dawn session and uh mark farina just played the the best fucking music for us you know it was like a little down tempo it was very like um almost like gospel like vocal house and stuff it was a sunday morning in oakland and it just fits so perfect. And I remember I was still super high, just like tingling all over, seeing little sparkles and things. I can't remember exactly what I took at that party. I used to take like an ecstasy and maybe a tab or two of acid. Um, that was always a nice mix, as I was, con- as far as I was concerned. And if anybody had like a joint getting passed around or something, I'd always hit that. But rarely did I fuck with, uh, alcohol at, at that point. Fairly soon after I moved to San Francisco, um, I started getting visitors from Albuquerque, uh, you know, cause I had a, a nice carpeted floor or, uh, sofa that some friends could sleep on and they knew that. So they started hitting me up being like, yo yeah, man, can we come visit? And one of my first visitors, if I remember correctly, it was this kid, uh, John that wrote Dwell and my buddy, uh, Nate, uh, that wrote Jolt, um, both from Albuquerque. I think it was those two. Um, I could be wrong, but in any case, um, we came to visit and they were all excited to, you know, see all the graffiti and see the city and, you know, get high and, you know, do San Francisco, do it right, and so, we, at some point, walked up to Upper Haight Street, and, uh, I remember it was, it was in the evening, lots of neon, uh, lots of kids, you know, they would just, like, walk by you, and under their breath, just say things like acid, or, uh, shrooms, just really quiet as they walked by, you know, and if you needed something, um, you know, you'd run back and grab them. And usually those like, uh, hippie kids that were living in the park, like the Grateful Dead people, they, they had really, really good acid. Once in a while you might get ripped off by them, but I think generally it was pretty good. You know, they were, they were, they had good stuff. Um, especially if you knew what you were looking for. Uh, but in any case, like we're, we're up there, we're cruising around We had uh, graffiti uh, stickers with us. We had written our tags on stickers. And uh, we're going up Hate Street and we're just putting up our stickers and conversating and laughing and checking shit out, you know. We're having a really, really great time. And so we do that for a few blocks and we get stopped by this group of kids. Um, They were all, I imagine they were all teenagers there was probably five of them in this little group that stopped us and there was three of us me and the two guys I was with were in their early 20s and they were probably about mm, five six not you know five seven not like big dudes at all kind of regular size and uh we were definitely outnumbered and we could tell they were aggressive or whatever um asking us what the fuck we're doing and I ended up taking the pole position and talking to the the main kid that was uh, obviously kind of the ringleader. And I just stepped to him, and I was just, like, very plain, like, old guy style. Just like, hey, man, we're just putting up stickers. We wrote our graffiti names on these stickers, and we're just putting them up. You know, we're trying to go all city. And they were like, um well, you know, this is our street, you know, we run this street, you know, and I was like, well, that's cool, we're not trying to, like, take over your street, dude, we're just getting up, you know, and if you don't want us to keep getting up, then, like, cool, we'll chill, they're just stickers, like, don't trip, dude, and I think, like, it just, like, the the main guy... Had probably already told the guys that they were going to jump us and they had kind of decided you know and so my conversation wasn't really going to help it, it but at some point uh one of the guys um grabbed my buddy i think it was nate and threw him up against like a uh the security gates that they pulled down over the fronts of stores on H street and all over those big roll down metal gates and i grabbed the guy, pulled him off Nate, and pushed him to the side pretty easily because I was just much bigger than all of them. And Nate and John just took off running. And um, I think like two or three of the guys took off after after my friends. And I was there looking at the, the main ringleader dude, and, uh, and his buddy, and just in a flash, uh, the guy hit me right in the cheek, um, I th- feel like it was in the right cheek, but it happened so fast, like he was quick, um, I remember he had like a little ring on, so it might have cut my cheek a little bit, but I was totally unfazed by it, like it, it didn't hurt at all, It didn't push my head back it didn't hurt my neck I just it was the weirdest thing because I'd been hit before like hard this wasn't that it was really weird um and I just looked at him and was like all right you get that out of your system are you done are you done now and he was like I don't know and I was like well fuck you dude and I just turned my back to him and I started walking away I didn't run I made sure just to walk away. And I just knew if those two guys jumped me from behind, I was gonna fight them until they were unconscious. But luckily it didn't get to that. And they just talked shit to me as I walked away. And I ended up walking um, all the way back to my apartment because I figured my buddies would stay off of Hate Street because (laughs) of this gang of kids and uh i was hoping that they just were paying attention as we were walking from my uh my apartment over to hate street so i just walked home I, I think i just sat out on the front steps of my of my building and uh just waited and sure enough they knew how to get back they were smart enough this is pre internet you know you really had to pre-cell phone, you know, you, you had to be aware of your surroundings, like in that kind of situation, they could have never found me, you know, like I didn't have, I might've had a landline, you know, they might've had this, like, man, that could have been a terrible nightmare if they didn't, if they couldn't figure out how to get back. I was planning to go back up to Hate Street to do a little recon for them after like an hour let things calm down and see if they were still up there but luckily they got back to the back to my place but i remember poor nate was missing a shoe and i was like bro what what happened and they were like dude those guys chased us far and we got kind of lost and we were like fuck we got to figure out where mike is and we figured you went back home and so we fi- we finally figured out how to get over here, you know, but in the midst of the chase, one of my shoes fell off and I didn't go back for it. You know, I just kept running and I was like, fuck, dude, what a bummer, you know? Well, let's wait a little while and we'll go back up to Hate Street and we'll keep an eye out. We might have taken weapons with us just in case we ran into those kids again. And we went looking for his shoe. <laughs> Kind of a goose chase but you know we thought well we got to give it a try so we get up to uh hate and uh i think masonic and we're we're walking uh west on h street up towards ashbury and i think within that first block or two uh as we're walking up you know there's like homeless people that are kind of camped out on the sidewalk um kind of all over the place um, it was getting pretty late and they saw us come and this one guy held up Nate's shoe while he was just seated on the sidewalk and just knew that we would eventually see it and come right to him and it's exactly what happened Nate was like oh fuck that dude's got my shoe and we rolled over there and was like oh man what the fuck that's fresh man you got his shoe rad you know good looking out and the dude was like 10 bucks and we were like, "What, dude, dude got fucking chased. You saw everything and he lost his shoe. And now you're going to make dude pay to get his shoe back. What a dick. The guy was like, yo, man, I'm hungry, man. Uh, you know, 10 bucks for the shoe. You know, if you want the shoe back, you got to pay for it. You know, I got it for you. And he was like, fuck, man. How, you know, how about five? And the dude was like, "If that's all you got, dude. That's what I'll take. And he was like, all right, it's. I think that's all Nate had. And so he gave him his fiver. The guy gave him the shoe. And <laughs> I think we went and got a fucking burrito. and We didn't run into those assholes again. I think the kids were selling drugs up there. And they thought we were trying to infringe on their territory. And just had to let them know that that wasn't the case. <laughs> Funny memory, though. Sometimes on the weekends back there, um, I would run into friends. Usually in the mission or lower or upper hate, And uh, they would let me know that there was going to be a a rave in the soccer fields in Golden Gate Park right down by the ocean. Um, There's like some windmills down there at the west end of Golden Gate Park right at the beach. And that was like the the landmark for these parties. And there was these big soccer fields. Um, They're still there. Um, But at night, uh, on the weekends, sometimes, there would be these like pop-up raves out there there was a guy I remember that had like a little mini pickup truck and he had turntables and a generator and some speakers in the back of this little pickup and he would go at night down the little paved uh bicycle paths um and then out into the soccer field and kind of tuck his truck into the trees at the edge of the fields and uh people would just um show up you know and again this was before uh, cell phones uh, the internet was still a very new thing at the time I think the it wasn't even the that first house yeah it was a few years later that I had Wi-Fi in the house I mean this is still 93 so you just have to go out to the that part of the soccer fields and just kind of have a look around and um, try to f- you know, listening for the bass, that would be usually the dead giveaway. You'd be kind of just lurking in the trees and you'd hear, you know, and you'd be like, oh shit, we've got to be close, you know? And, uh, where we would enter the park for those parties, um, from the five Fulton bus, um, you'd have to walk into the park from Fulton street. And there's these little, uh, dirt paths, uh, walking paths that are off the, the main paths um, that people kind of take to lurk around in the in the woods there down by the soccer fields. And I remember the first time I went to one of those parties, um, I was, I think I had two girls with me, and we're walking through these really, really, really dark woods. Um, we could, I think we could hear the music um as we got to the street and we just knew had we had to walk through the woods to get over to wherever it was eventually we find ourselves out on the soccer fields we find the party it's going on there's probably about 50 people there when we arrived including a bunch of like really young kids like six seven years old that were like kicking soccer balls around in the fields at like two o'clock in the morning (laughs) Um, but it was cool. It was mellow. It's, it felt pretty safe. I think the music was muffled from the street by the trees, so there wasn't too much risk of the police coming. Um, again, nobody had cell phones, so even if somebody was walking through the park and was annoyed that people were throwing a rave, um, you know, the police probably wouldn't have got there for a while. And eventually, that's usually how those parties ended. Some police would show up, and um, people would have been able to warn the guy with the pickup truck that the cops were coming in enough time that he could turn everything off and drive away with his lights off real quiet on the other side of the park um and get away um and we'd be all bombed and when the cops would actually get there we'd boo them and (laughs) it was this this whole scene but man those were such fun parties you know it's like i don't know there's something something special about those days when the best things you know you you'd hear about it and you had to jump on the opportunity right then and there you had to go get a bus and figure it out um and sometimes you'd get there and there'd be no party or the party would be busted already and you'd have to just like go try something else but man I I miss the the spontaneity of those days and the just the willingness to do things illegally because it was just fun and we couldn't understand why police would want to bust us just wanting to dance and have fun and hang out with each other and meet new people and man god bless the rave era i miss that shit